Amen. You know, we often think of most things in life as being either victories or defeats. Um, for example, your team, they either win or they lose the job. You either get the job or you don't. Or the, the surgery was either successful or it wasn't. The reality is many things in life involve both victory and defeat, victory and humiliation. Uh, for example, uh, I think about the recent accomplishments like graduation. We have had a lot of graduates we've recognized around here, high school graduates, college graduates. And there's a lot of glory that comes with that, you know, congratulations, you graduated. But the reality is we know behind the scenes, there was a lot of blood and sweat and tears and long nights and, and maybe even some, some defeats, you know, maybe even some tests that weren't, didn't do so well on. Uh, I think about athletics. Most teams have both. Uh, my, my team right now in college baseball is doing really well. And they've been number one most of the season. And it's fun to watch. I've watched every game I've been able to. And there's great victory glory in it. But there's also defeats along the way. There's injuries. There's losses. And it's kind of one of those seasons where if you don't win at all, you know, it's kind of what was the point of it, right? Now I know what Alabama fans feel like in football. <laughs> but uh, most things in life are, are both. There's victory and there's defeat. And we're going to discover this is also the case with Jesus' ministry and his life. There's great glory, but there's also a cross. And there's a lot of humiliation. And we're going to discover the same thing is true with those who might follow him. There is great glory. There's great exaltation. And at the exact same time, there is great defeat and great humiliation that comes with it. We should learn to expect both. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. If you would please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to begin reading in verse 1, and this is the very inspired Word of God. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let me pray for us. Father, there are some here this morning in this room and watching online who are struggling right now, struggling in life. I pray that this morning you'll minister to them by your word, by your spirit. Remind them that you often bring great glory in the midst of humility. And Father, there are many here who are experiencing great victories and great accomplishments and great glory right now, and we're grateful for that. Thank you for that. But we also pray you'll find us faithful in that, and we pray that you'll equip us 
for when we experience more of the humility. And uh, we pray that you'll be honored in all of this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to point out three areas where we see both exaltation and humiliation. And these three areas are the same three areas we talked about last week. Who Jesus is, what he does, and what we will do if we truly are his. So first of all, the exaltation and humiliation in who he is. Look at chapter 9, verse 1 with me. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. If you look at the previous verse that we finished on last week, chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus talked about how he would come in glory with the glory of his Father and the glory of the angels. And now here he is talking about this glory again. The problem is when the disciples are with Jesus in his earthly ministry, it's easy to forget about the glory because they see humanity. That's all they see, uh, veiled in flesh. They see his glory is diluted to some extent. He's just like us in every way yet without sin. So at some level, they're getting used to, they're around this man, they're around this person, and they kind of lose sight of the fact that they are around God himself. And he is reminding them, it will not always be this way. His glory will not always be veiled the way that it is. And he says to them, some of you are going to taste it and see it even before your death. Now that raises the question, who's he talking about? Who are the some of them? And I think the most likely explanation is he's talking about the three who are about to go with him up on the mountain to experience the transfiguration. I think these are the ones who are about to see the glory prior to tasting death because that's what happens right on the heels of him saying this. Look at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. So this is the event that's often called the transfiguration. It happens six days after Jesus tells them, some of you are going to see me in glory even before your death. I think the some are the three, Peter, James, and John. He takes them to this mountain. It doesn't tell us the name of the mountain. Most people today think the mountain was Mount Hermon, which is the tallest mountain in Israel, standing at about 9,000 feet. It's only about 15 miles away from Caesarea Philippi, so it's in the vicinity of where they already are. And it's on the northernmost region in Israel. Some people think I'm a little bit off for doing the Pikes Peak Marathon or Ascent each summer. I'm signed up to do it this summer. And I just want to point out it's biblical. Going up on mountains. You know, Jesus did it, so I'm in good company here, right? He might have been a little wiser and not try to get there as fast as he can. But uh, I'm in good company here. Uh, Jesus takes them up on this mountain. And it says he is transfigured before them. The Greek word is metamorpho, where we get our word metamorphosis. It just means a great change, an incredible change took place before them. What changed? He changed. How did he change? What did he look like? What happened? Look at verse 3. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I think what's happening is they're getting a vision of Jesus. They're seeing Jesus For who he is with no veil, the veil is removed, and they're seeing him in all of his glory. Uh, I I think this is what they would have seen if he were to appear to them prior to his incarnation. This is what they would have seen. Uh, Matthew tells us his face shone as the sun. 
It's described as bright. It's described as, you know, hard to see, hard to look at. This is, what, this is the description of when God appears to people in the Old Testament in, in a theophany. It's described like this. In Exodus 34, for example, Moses experiences God, and when he comes down, Moses himself has a face that's shining, and people can't even look at it because of the glory, the radiance, the brightness, and he has to wear a veil because the people can't even look at Moses who experienced God. And, and, and one day in the future, when we are with Jesus physically in person, I think this is something of what he will look like. There will be this glory. Uh, for example, Revelation chapter 1, verse 14 describes him. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. I think they're trying to use imagery that we can relate to to try to describe something. It's almost indescribable. You know, this is, this is a glorious scene. Verse 4, and there appeared to them. Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So all of a sudden, Elijah and a Moses, Moses appear. This is incredible. This is a supernatural event. We don't normally think of this as one of the miracles, but this is a miracle. This is incredible. And it says they were talking. Wouldn't you love to be there and hear that conversation? Luke tells us what they were talking about. They were talking about Jesus' departure. The literal word is exodus. They were talking about his exodus. So in other words, I think they're talking with him about what he's about to do, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascent and leaving. I can't imagine the glory of what it looks like and the glory of just hearing the conversation. And guess what Peter has to do? He has to open his mouth and say something. All right? look, at, look at verses 5 and 6. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Verse 6 tells us why he opened his mouth and said something. He didn't know what else to do. He was scared. He didn't know what else to do. He didn't know what to say, so he just said something. And it's just a good little life lesson. If you don't know what to say, just don't say anything. You know, just keep your mouth closed. And uh, I, I love to see Peter relaying this story to Mark many years later. Like Mark, you know, he's describing it and telling him. And then he says, Mark, you're not going to believe what I did next. And Mark's thinking, oh, no, surely you didn't. Yeah, I opened my mouth and said something. Why, why does he suggest that they make three tents? It's kind of interesting. I, a lot of commentators believe the answer is this maybe was happening around the time as the Feast of Tabernacles when God's people would make tents or build these sort of temporary dwellings, little tabernacles. Why they do that? Because it was a reminder that God had tabernacled among them. And it was a reminder that they themselves were led by God for 40 years and they tabernacled in these temporary dwellings. And I think in, in his mind, in Peter's mind, he's thinking, this is it. You know, the Feast of Tabernacles is happening. Je we've just seen Jesus in all his glory. He's just been transfigured. We've just seen Moses. We've just seen Elijah. They're back. I mean, this is it, right? The, the kingdom of God inaugurated right here. God's about to do it right now. Here it is. The thing we've been waiting for, looking forward to all of our lives. It's about to happen, right? He just got told that's not the way it's going to happen. Like we just saw that last week in the previous passage, and he had to get rebuked. Get behind me, Satan. And now Peter has to get corrected again, but this time it's coming from God the Father. Look at verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
The image of the cloud, once again, comes from the Old Testament. When God appeared to people, he often appeared in the cloud. Twenty times you'll see that in Exodus alone. So here's God the Father speaking, saying something similar to what we've heard before. At the baptism of Jesus, we hear the voice from heaven saying, You are my son. With you I am well pleased. Now we hear the voice of the Father not speaking to Jesus per se, but he's speaking to the disciples, the three who are there. This is my son. Listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. Verse 8, And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now we're back to normalcy. Jesus and his humanity, his humility, his humble, normal, ordinary state while he's here on earth. But we got a sneak peek, and these three disciples got a sneak peek. This is not just a man. This is God himself. This is God who has tabernacled among us once and for all. So therefore, there's no more tabernacles. There's no more temples. The dwelling of God is with us right here in the person of Jesus. This is God himself among us, and we've seen him in his glory. We have beheld his glory. And don't let his humanity fool you. Don't let his flesh fool you. And, and, and don't forget that when you're around him, you are around God himself. There's a classic scene in the movie Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail where they have come to a room full of cups and the question is, which one is the cup, the Holy Grail? And there's this belief that if you drink water from it, you'll live. And uh, there's a guard there, and he's, he's a knight, and he says, choose wisely. And the first guy looks around at the cups, and he finds the one that's the shiniest and the brightest, and it's made of gold, and it's got emeralds. And he says, surely this is the cup of the king of kings. It's the nicest one. And he dips it in the water and drinks from the water. And if you've seen the scene, you know, he starts aging really quickly, and he dies. And the guard says, he chose foolishly. And it's kind of an understatement. Uh, and then Indiana Jones comes along and he looks at the different cups and he says, now that is the cup of a carpenter. And he picks the one that's the most normal, ordinary, plain, probably the cheapest one among them. And he dips it in the water and drinks from it. And the knight says, you've chosen wisely. And the point is this. Here, here's my question. How many times do you and I miss the glory of God, the glory of Jesus, because we're looking for something shiny. We're looking for something expensive. We're looking for something gold. We're looking for something that seems obvious. And how many times do we miss it because the glory of God is often veiled in flesh. The glory of God is often veiled in humility. Let me just give two examples. One example is the fact that God often works in small, humble things. He often works in just the conversation between two people. He often works in the small Bible study with the person who's just teaching God's Word faithfully, regularly. And from our perspective, we often think we need something big. We need a big event. We need more people there. The more people, the better. We want it to be shiny. We want it to be polished. We want it to be well-produced. Surely this is how God will work. And how often does God work in the small, ordinary, humble, mundane just the conversation, just the one-on-one, -on -one, just the small Bible study where you feel like, are they getting anything? Are they hearing anything? Why are people not coming? You know, I'm just, it just feels like I'm babysitting. I'm teaching five-year-olds, and I just feel like I'm babysitting. Am I really making a difference here? The glory of God is often found in the humble, small, unlikely things. And the second example I want to 
point out here is the example of the church. The first time Jesus came, he came in flesh. He came as a man. And people looked at him and said, that's just a man. He's from Nazareth. That's not God. That's not the glory of God. That's a man. Well, the reality is Jesus has come again. Jesus is here. Jesus is present on the earth. Where? He's present by his spirit in his church. The presence of Jesus is found in his church. That's why in the Bible, the church is referred to as his body, his bride. This is the presence of Jesus on the earth. Glorious, incredible, miraculous. But it's also humble. And it's lowly, and it's mundane, and it's normal. How often do we look at the church and go, it's just a bunch of normal people, and a lot of them got, we all have issues. And there's frustrations, and there's inefficiencies, and are we really doing anything? It's just, it just seems, you know, just normal. And it's like a lot of people say, don't, I don't, just give me Jesus. I don't want to deal with the church. The church has got baggage. The church has got issues. You know, the church is messy. Doesn't seem like much. Just give me Jesus. Don't give me his church. It's like saying, give me Jesus, but I can't stand his bride. Give me Jesus, but I don't want his body. Just his head. I don't want his body. How offensive is that? So here's the point. Do you want to experience the glory of God? Here's one key. Get involved. Get committed with just normal, ordinary, mundane, humble, week-in, week-out ministry in a local church. And stick with it. Don't quit when this person says this or that person did that or this person looked at you this way or you're frustrated because they did that and then you're out. That's a part of it. That's a part of the humility. It's a part of the mundaneness and the normalcy and the humility. Do you want to experience the glory of God? Your instinct is going to go, go look for the flashy. Go look for the big. Go look for the glory. In reality, go look for the humble. Go look for the normal. Go look for the routine and experience the glory of God. Second, I want you to notice the exaltation and humiliation in what he does. In verse 7, the voice says, This is my son. Listen to him. And the question is, listen to him saying what? What is it that the son is saying that we're supposed to listen to? And I think the answer is what he started teaching that we looked at last week. Look back at chapter 8, verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things. We said last week, Jesus has not yet been teaching them that he's come to suffer. It's like two and a half years into the ministry and he's starting to teach them because they haven't even gotten lesson one, who he is. They got it now, he's the Christ. But now they need to learn the Christ has come to suffer. And Jesus told them, we saw it last week, guys, I'm here to suffer. And what does Peter say? No, no way, you can't. What does Peter, what does Jesus do? He rebukes him, get behind me, Satan. And now what do we have? Now we have the Father coming in, reaffirming what Jesus has said, trying to drive home this point in verse 9, as, uh, I'm sorry, where the Father says, listen to him. This is my son. Listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. This is a pivotal moment in the story of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. The confession, you are the Christ, Caesarea Philippi. You're right. I'm the Christ, but I must suffer. You can't suffer. Get behind me, Satan. I'm here to suffer. That's my mission. That's why I'm here. I'm here to suffer. Rebukes him. And now 
we have the father's voice saying, listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. He's my son. He's here to suffer. Listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. Look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the final time that Jesus will say to them in, in Mark's gospel, hey guys, you got to keep it secret. Keep a lid on it. But he now, for the first time, says, until, until I accomplish my mission, then you go public with it. But notice that Jesus knows what his mission is. I'm here to die. I'm here to suffer. That's why I'm here. I came on a mission to suffer. He knows he's going to rise again. Three days later, I'll rise again, but he's here to suffer. And the disciples just can't get it through their skulls that that's what he's here to do. Look at verse 10. They kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They just don't have a category for it. They've got a category for the God's king who reigns, God's king who's exalted, God's king who exists in glory. They've got that category mastered. The category they don't have mastered is God's king who suffers, God's king who dies, God's king who goes to a cross. And the problem is the glory comes through the cross. The exaltation only comes through the humility. You can't have one without the other. So they're confused, and that's why in verse 11, they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? They're trying to put all of this together. And I think they're kind of second-guessing him here. Like, Jesus, do you remember Malachi 4, where it says Elijah's going to come, and when Elijah comes, then the kingdom of God is going to come? And we just saw Elijah. He was just with you in the transfiguration, and we saw you transfigured. Like, I think you're wrong about this. I think the kingdom of God's about to happen, right? Is it possible you're mistaken? Did you not just hear the voice? This is my son. Listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. They got some pieces of the puzzle, but they just can't put it together. And I wonder how often that's true of you and me. We got pieces of the puzzle, but we don't quite have it all put together, especially as we think about the future events that we just don't know. We got pieces of it, but how exactly is it going to all fit together? I, I, I wonder if we may be as confused as the disciples sometimes. In verses 12 and 13, Jesus affirms, you guys are right, the Bible's right, I know about Malachi 4, Elijah comes back, but what you guys don't know, Elijah coming back is John the Baptist. When Malachi 4 talked about Elijah coming back, it was pointing forward to John the Baptist. And you read Matthew's account, you'll see this. Elijah coming back is not what happens at the transfiguration. Elijah coming back is about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And by the way, guys, do you remember what happened to John the Baptist? They did to him whatever they wanted. They beheaded him. He suffered and died. And he was a forerunner to who? Me. Jesus. So Jesus says, guess what? Just what they did to him, they're going to do to me. I'm the king, but I'm the king who came to suffer. I'm the king in glory. You just saw the glory. But the glory only comes through the cross. One of the most significant false teachings that you find within the church today is what is called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is all about the glory and the exaltation and the victory. But they're not so much about the humility and the suffering and the cross. And uh, it's sometimes called the health and wealth gospel. These are guys who say, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy now. The victory is now. And one of the classic examples of a prosperity preacher is Benny Hinn. 
and an interesting story that's developed over the past few years, I think. His uh, nephew, Costi Hinn, used to be a part of the family and used to be a part of the ministry, this prosperity gospel ministry. And he talks about their experience, the money, the cars, the houses. Uh, Listen to the way he describes it. Growing up in the Hen family empire was like belonging to some hybrid of the royal family and the mafia. Our lifestyle was lavish, our loyalty was enforced, and our version of the gospel was big business. Though Jesus Christ was still a part of our gospel, he was more of a magic genie than the king of kings. Rubbing him the right way by giving money and having enough faith would unlock your spiritual inheritance. God's goal was not his glory but our gain. His grace was not to set us free from sin but to make us rich. The abundant life he offered wasn't eternal, it was now. We lived the prosperity gospel. By God's grace, Costi Hinn left that version, false version, and he embraced the biblical gospel. And he now says this. He says, No longer did I believe that God's purpose was to make me happy, healthy, and wealthy. Instead, I saw that he wanted me to live for him regardless of what I could get from him. I came to realize I wanted, God wanted me to live for him regardless of what I could get from him. Now, my guess is there's not many of us who are tempted to follow Benny Hinn or tempted to give money to Benny Hinn. But there is a softer version of the prosperity gospel that is very prevalent in evangelicalism, and we are very attracted to it by nature because we get the exaltation and the glory and the victory, and we don't have to deal with the cross and the humility. Therefore, it's naturally attractive to us, to our flesh. How do you know? How do you know if a minister or a church or a book or a ministry leans toward this, leans toward prosperity gospel? The way you know is, is it, are, do you always hear about the victory, the, 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 the exaltation, the glory? Do you ever hear about the humility? Do you ever hear about take up your cross and follow Jesus to your death? Do you ever hear about the cross? If not, I would say, I wouldn't waste my time with it. Right? I, 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 would, I, would, I wouldn't mess with it. And it's, it's difficult because it probably feels motivational. You probably would say, but God's using this in my life. You know, I feel motivated by this. God's using this. But guess what? That's how false teaching works. It feels good. It sounds right. There's pieces of it that sound good. When Peter says to Jesus, you're not going to suffer. We don't want you to suffer. He has Jesus' intentions in mind. Like, that sounds right. It sounds like a right instinct. We don't want you to suffer. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. That is a satanic mentality. It doesn't sound satanic. It sounds positive. We don't want you to suffer. That's satanic. If anybody ever tells you, if friends ever tell you, it's not God's will for you to suffer, I would say, get behind me, Satan. That is a satanic mentality, right? How satanic is it? How foolish is it? How arrogant is it to say it's God's will for his son to experience humility in a cross, but not his followers? We're called to take up our cross and follow him. Follow him where? Follow him to death. Deny yourself. So if you want to experience his glory, if you want to experience the glory of Jesus, it comes through the humility 
of Jesus. And this brings us now to talk about the exaltation and humiliation in his followers. I just want to point out a couple of areas where we, his followers, can experience both the exaltation and the humiliation. First, we can experience both in personal evangelism. In verse 9, he tells them to be silent about what they've seen until his death, burial, and resurrection. And then the implication is, then I want you to go public. Be silent for now until I accomplish the mission, and then I want you to go public with the message about what I've done. He wants them to go public. And by the way, they do. And they're very effective. And we are here today because they do. And they're not the only ones who are supposed to go public. Guess who else is supposed to go public? We are. We're supposed to go public with the message of Jesus Christ and what he's done through his death, burial, and resurrection. And why don't we? I think one of the biggest reasons is because of the humiliation. We don't want to be humiliated. What if I share this with somebody and they reject me? What if I share this with somebody and they think I'm a religious nut? I don't want that stigma. See, we, we don't do personal evangelism because we don't want the humiliation. But here's the point. We're called to the humiliation. That's a part of what it means to follow Jesus. It's not, you'll be humiliated, therefore don't do it. It's, you'll be humiliated, therefore, that's what we've signed up for. That's what taking up your cross and following him involves. Sometimes it involves humility. Back in chapter 8, verse 38, he says, hey, if you're ashamed of me and you're not willing to do this, guess what? When I return, I'll be ashamed of you. Right? And by the way, there's great glory in doing this. There's glory and exaltation in identifying with Jesus. Even identifying with him in his humility leads to identifying with him in his exaltation. And by the way, there's great glory in seeing people come to Christ. You get to be a part of seeing them transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. There's great glory in that. So here's the point. Do you want to be a follower of Jesus who experiences his glory by experiencing his humility? Here's a key way to do it. Open your mouth and talk about Jesus with people and get ready to experience both the humility and the exaltation that comes with following Jesus. A second area where we experience the humility and the exaltation is in the Lord's Supper. Consider, for example, the humility of the Lord's Supper. Consider the humility of this cup. That's, that's humble. You know, there's nothing flesh, uh, flashy about that. That's a humble cup. And what does it represent? It represents the body and the blood of Jesus, a man. Think about the humility of what it represents. And not just a man, and not just a body, and not just blood, but the body and the blood on the cross. Poured out, broken for us. And it represents us saying we need that for our right standing with God. And we are clinging to a bloody man on a cross for our forgiveness and right standing with God. Let's be honest, that's humiliating if you think about it. We're saying we need a man who was crucified by the Romans 2,000 years ago for our right standing with God. It's a stumbling block to many because it's humiliating. Consider the humility of this. But consider the glory in it. This represents his body. Where's his body now? It's not in a tomb, not, no longer dead, but alive. 
and reigning at God's right hand right now. His body with blood coursing through his veins is alive and well, resurrected, glorified. And if we were to see him right now, my guess is we would see him much the way Peter saw him in this glorified state. That, by the way, is one of the reasons why we don't think this is the actual body and blood of Jesus. Why? Because his actual body and blood is right now at God's right hand in heaven reigning over the entire cosmos. This can't be the body and blood of Jesus when his body and blood is glorified in heaven right now. And consider the glory in that one day his glorified body will return to the earth as the king and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, as we take this meal, I, consider you, I encourage you to, first of all, take it with humility. We are saying, God, we come humbly. We need the blood of your son poured out for us. And by taking this, we're saying, I'm willing to take up my cross and follow Jesus wherever it leads, even if it leads to my death. So take it in humility, but also take it in glory. Take it confidently. Take it boldly. Like you belong. Because of what Jesus has done, you belong at the table of the king. And one day, you, the child of the king, will take this meal with the king in that day when this meal is fulfilled and we see him in all his glory. So for these reasons, we ask that only believers in Jesus Christ take this meal with us this morning. Secondly, we ask that only believers who are in good standing with a New Testament church take this meal. Why is that important? Because the church is the body of Christ. He values it, we should value it. So only, we invite you to take this meal only if you value the body of Christ, the church of Jesus, by being a member in good standing of a church of Jesus. So I want to give you a few moments to reflect, pause, examine, confess, make sure you can take this meal in a manner that's worthy after a few moments, I will pray for us. If you need to get the cup, they're back at the back. You can go get one while we spend a few minutes praying in silence. Let's pray.